Once again, that's Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handled, handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike Stanzik. I'm the interim pastor here at Trinity I told John I was going to make a joke out of this, but just before the service, John Stevenson approached me and said, Mr. Stanzik, I hear a rumor that you're about to preach with bronchitis, and I know you're far too wise to do something like that, to which I can only reply, John, you gravely overestimate my wisdom. <laughs> yeah. So that's my way of telling you prepare for some concussive coughing over the course of this sermon. If you'd join me in prayer, that'd be great. Lord Jesus, we, we approach you today as the source of true wisdom, as the source of true rest, as the one who has qualified us for the, to know the Father by your cross, and you've invited us into a life of discipleship, learning from you, and, and learning with grace, not with the heavy burdens of, of earning our own worth. And so, Lord, I, I praise you for that and ask that you would make clear this passage to us this morning. Amen. So, Socrates, he was a philosopher in Athens in the 400s BC. You, you've probably heard his name because he's this huge, huge figure in philosophy. And his story is fascinating. I want to share a little bit of it this morning. The reason why I think it's so fascinating is because of the role that weakness plays in the story of Socrates, by which I mean that Socrates' limits, the fact that he knew his limits, played this enormous role in his story. At the time that he was born, folks in the public square had already kind of been talking about big ideas. They'd been sharing different kinds of thoughts and breaking up into to all these different schools of thought. And, and Socrates came on the scene, and he, he disrupted everything. And here, here's why. He realized that he didn't know it all. 
Which sounds like a, like, why would that be a stunning revelation, right? But, but it actually was for, for a lot of people. Like, he, he decided that he was going to build an, a system of thought starting from, I don't know anything. I should start figuring things out. And so he goes around, he starts asking people questions in the public square. All, all these people who are representing, like, the Parmenideans and the Pythagoreans and the Epicureans, these guys that they're convinced they, they have figured things out, they have a system of thought, they, they're confident in their knowledge. And what starts to happen is Socrates starts thinking, hey, you know, I, I think these guys are kind of arrogant. I don't think they know all that much either. And, and so as he's asking questions and probing, he's, he's disrupting all the ways that people think in his day just because he's, he's beginning from this place of weakness. And he made a lot of, lot of enemies, lots of people who didn't want to own up to the fact that they didn't have it all figured out. They didn't want to own up to the fact that they too are weak, that they have to change their ideas. They had to face their weaknesses. And so as Socrates is alert to all his limits, he suddenly, over time, he creates this system of thought that influences Western philosophy to this day. People still talk about stuff Socrates said. For Socrates, finding truth started with acknowledging his weaknesses. And now, I don't bring that up to say, hey, go out, read you know, Plato's account of Socrates and believe everything that you see there. I'm not saying that. Like, obviously, you know, I'm not endorsing everything Socrates said, but I think the story really illustrates something very true. In Jesus' day, there were many, many people who were really into him at the start, and then they really didn't like him later on. The reason why is because Jesus told them that in order to really find truth, they were going to have to face their weaknesses. They were going to have to change their ideas about Messiah, change their ideas about how God would save the world. And most offensively, he told them that in order to come to the Lord, in order to experience redemption, they would have to face the fact that they are hopeless sinners in need of grace. Finding truth would have to start with acknowledging weakness. And so that's what we're going to see play out today in a few different ways. We're going to see that Jesus makes himself known to those who know their weaknesses. He makes himself known to those who know their weaknesses. And we're going to see that take place in in a few different ways. First, those who know their weakness are willing to change. Those who know their weakness are willing to change. You guys will recall that last week, we started the speech that Jesus is currently in, right? And it all started because John the Baptist was having doubts about Christ. He was saying, you don't, you don't fit my ideas of what Messiah was meant to be, so are, are you really Messiah? And so that's led Jesus on this, this whole speech where you know, it culminated in him accusing the crowds because they had rejected Jesus as well. Not to say that John rejected Jesus, but they, they stuck to their ideas about the Messiah so hard that they ended up rejecting him because he didn't perfectly match their expectations they turned away from him and so in light of that jesus goes on to denounce like specific cities in galilee he's been touring galilee for his ministry he starts calling out specific cities and what he's doing is he's essentially announcing that the people in these cities will be held responsible for their ignorance and their unwillingness to repent because their ignorance was a willing ignorance. They didn't repent out of stubbornness. And his words are pretty scathing. Let's, let's reread them. 
He said, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will actually be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So here's why Jesus' words are so scathing. He's taking these little kind of innocent Galilean country towns, and he is comparing them to some of the most infamous, evil cities in all of ancient history. Like, these cities were threats to God's people. They represented deep rejection of God's kingdom. They, like, Sodom in particular is the city mentioned in Genesis whose the moral corruption in the city became so great that God himself comes down to destroy it, to raise it to the ground. And God is saying, Capernaum, you're worse than Sodom. Like, these are scathing words. Now, anyone, any one of Jesus' audience members, they would have heard this and say, whoa, okay. Let's cool it for a second. There's a big difference between us and Sodom. That's not a fair comparison. There's a big difference between us. One of us is, is deserving of judgment far more than the other. And Jesus said, you know what? You're right. There's a big difference between the two of you. One of you is deserving of far more judgment than the other, and it's you. And here's the reason why. Because you have been privileged with far more knowledge. So I'm hesitant to even use the word privilege because it's been so hijacked in the the rhetoric of of our day. Like I am worried I'm triggering people even by bringing up the word privilege. But but here we go. Here's kind of my impression of how the word privilege is being used right now in the public sphere. Some people want to say, okay, hey, I might have some, some certain privileges, Some of them I worked for, some of them I didn't. But I'm not responsible for having privilege, right? That's part of what makes it privilege. So if I'm not responsible for having access to these privileges, then there shouldn't be any expectations on me because I have privilege, right? Privilege has nothing to do with responsibility. So that's one side. And the other side would want to say, privilege has everything to do with responsibility. In fact, privilege is how we determine responsibility, So people who have really, really high privilege, they're the ones who are responsible. And if you have not so much privilege, well, you're not responsible. And if we just keep it this way, then eventually the scales will balance and we'll have fairness. And Jesus, as usual, he likes to defy our categories until we pull our hair out, and we should praise him for that. Jesus says, listen, just to start, all people are responsible. All people are responsible. People will have to give an account for how they responded to God. So the violent, mercilessly, just unspeakably merciless acts of Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, every one of those acts represents just another shake of the fist at the kingdom of God, and they will be held responsible. They'll be held responsible because God is perfectly just. But here's the other side to this. Because God is perfectly just, He also knows that certain people only know so much. 
some people aren't privy to all the information. Some people are only able to know so much about their situation. And so they'll be held accountable through judgment, but how harsh that judgment is will depend on their privilege. Jesus says that Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, they rejected the kingdom of God, but they didn't know it was the kingdom of God they were rejecting. As for you, Chorazin, as for you, Bethsaida, as for you, Capernaum, you heard the Sermon on the Mount. You saw the demonstrations of God's power. You saw the deaf hear, the mute speak, the blind see, the dead raised. You saw the kingdom materialize in front of you, and you met its king. And still you didn't repent. Now you tell me which one of you is more hard-hearted. Which one of you is more arrogant? Because Jesus, he's saying, I knew those cities. I knew those cities. And they were evil. They earned their reputation and they will get theirs. But if I had shown up in their neighborhoods in the way I've shown up in yours, if I demonstrated the kingdom like I'm demonstrating it here, let me tell you, things would have changed. We aren't held responsible for having privilege. We're held responsible for what we do with it. And so as we sit here today with whole Bibles, missing no pages, as we sit here today having seen God work among us to change hearts, as we sit here today with a seminary 20 minutes away, we have to ask ourselves, have I been lulled into too much comfort? Have I been lulled into too much self-confidence, too much independence? When my brothers and sisters in the persecuted church are doing amazing things in the faith with just pages, sometimes just passing along words by memory. And we can look at ourselves, and it's easy to feel really self-confident about how we stand before God, because I'm not participating in gun violence. I'm not dealing drugs. Most of us in this room aren't sleeping around, but there are more than just those ways to reject the kingdom. And so Jesus is saying that we all have to have the courage to face our sin, to look it in the eyes and to recognize that it's us, that we fall short. He's calling us to the same thing that he's calling Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. He's calling us to repent, which, which just means to turn away from the old ways of our life and to turn increasingly more and more to the kingdom, to the way that Jesus would have things. And the, the, the entire Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not, we, we sometimes think of it as, as this moment, right? Repent and believe. You have a moment to believe, a moment of repentance, and then that's, but instead, it's something that marks our entire lives as we again and again throw ourselves on the grace of Christ. Those who know their weakness are willing to change. But not only are they willing to change, those who know their weakness don't trust their assumptions. So reread verses 25 to 27 with me. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. So he's talking to the crowd again here. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So in this verse, Jesus suddenly he turns from the, the speech to the crowd to, to pray, which is something that he does on occasion. He sort of just prays in front of crowds. And the first thing that we see is that Jesus shares this relationship with God that no one else has. I mean, it wouldn't be totally unheard of for groups of, of Jews to get together and to pray to our Father, sort of like a collective our Father. That wouldn't be, have been unheard of. But for one individual to stand on his own and to just say, Father would have just been considered audacious, unprecedented. Jesus is claiming to have a very, very special familiarity with God. And when he turns back to the crowd, he, he tells the crowd, this father that I share a very special relationship with, he has handed everything over to me, just meaning that he's given me complete and total authority. And what has Jesus been given authority to do? To choose who gets to know God. Jesus is given the authority to reveal God. And so the question for us is, who is it that gets to know God? Who will be insightful enough to recognize that Jesus really is Messiah? Who will be wise enough to see that God's kingdom has arrived in him? Who, who's going to have that kind of understanding? And you, you, would, you would think it's the folks that have researched. It's the folks that have really, really thought and studied. It's the intelligent and the wise, but Jesus says that many wise people have stopped having any kind of interest in wisdom. Sometimes over time, it's like they become fossilized in their ideas. They're unwilling to get dug out. And for, G- for them, Jesus is just too unlikely of a Messiah. So there's a big difference between what's logical and what's likely. One time I was in this coffee shop, and there was, I was overhearing a conversation where there was this woman who was having this spiritual conversation with, with a guy. She was a believer, and he was kind of very militantly atheist. You know, there, there are extremely cordial, like sparklingly intelligent atheists in the world, and he should learn to emulate them more. He was very rude and just not, not a, a guy— fun guy to talk to. So he kept on interrupting her during the conversation, telling her, look at the logic. That was sort of his, like, almost mantra-like. Look at the logic. Look at the logic. Look at the logic. I mean, it was just this constant thing. And he said something like, how likely is it, how likely is it that God actually showed up as just some dude in the Middle East 2,000 years ago and that I need to believe in him to get saved? How likely is that? Look at the logic. And I was sitting there in my seat and thinking, well, there's nothing illogical about that. It's not illogical. It's unlikely, right? It would be illogical if she said, hey, you should believe in Jesus because he's a Middle Eastern man from 2,000 years ago. That would be a weird claim to make, right? Like, well, there were tons of Middle Eastern men from 2,000 years ago. Why? That would be illogical. Instead, he's the one being illogical. He was ruling out Jesus just because Jesus seemed unlikely. Just because it seemed unlikely to him that a man from the Middle East 2,000 years ago might really be the one sent to save the world, it offended his intelligence. 
it would offend the people he's been reading. It seemed contrary to his assumptions. And so he decided, well, then that must not be true. The things that are possible are the things I think are possible. Now, it's not wrong, if you're here today and you're exploring Christianity or if you're experiencing doubts yourself, it's not wrong to suspend belief in something that seems unlikely at first, right? Like, do your research, think about it, talk to people. If you're here today exploring Christianity, I'm not telling you just to adopt it right away. Christianity is not an anti-intellectual religion, anything but. But what I would say to you is the same thing that I would say to that guy in the coffee shop. Be willing to be surprised. Be willing to be surprised. Because Jesus seemed just as unlikely in his day as he does in ours. Jesus says that the truth about him would would only be found by those who come to him like children. Why children? Well, in my experience, children tend to have pretty flexible minds. Right? They don't quite think they know everything yet. Well, maybe they do, actually. But, but you know what I mean. Like they, they're, they're willing to be surprised. Children are willing to be surprised. Those who will come to know Jesus are going to be those who kind of distrust the assumptions that are just in the air. They're going to have flexible minds. They'll be willing to be surprised. They'll be willing to consider that, okay, okay. So maybe God may choose to save the world, not through a bureaucrat or a government program. Okay, I'm willing to entertain that. Maybe he won't save the world through some sort of like philosophical prodigy, publishing books and doing TED Talks. Maybe it won't be through that. And maybe it won't be through a businessman, somebody who, who's able to just accrue more and more wealth and incentivize the market in, in his way and suddenly change people's minds. Maybe it won't be through those things. No, maybe God wanted to save more than the elite. Maybe God wanted to save more than just the intelligentsia. Maybe he wanted to save all kinds of people down to the lowest in society. And if that was his mission, maybe he'd approach things differently. Okay, we're being flexible in how we're thinking, right? So, so okay, maybe if that's what God wanted to do, maybe he wouldn't save the world from the top down. Maybe he'd do it from the bottom up. In fact, yeah, maybe God would save the world by joining humanity in its most desperate places, in the darkest places, even joining humanity in the desperation of suffering injustice himself. And if I'm willing to entertain that possibility, then it's not inconceivable to see in this shabby, obscure, itinerant preacher the very face of God. This is one of the paradoxes at the heart of Christianity. That the way to glory was through service. That the way to exaltation came through humiliation. That the glorious God of the world showed that glory by becoming inglorious. This is one of the paradoxes of our faith. At one point, Paul will say that this gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to Jews. But for us, it's the power of God to salvation. 
Those who know their weakness don't trust their assumptions. And lastly, those who know their weakness come to Jesus for rest. So if you'd read read with me the last few verses. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So a lot of this passage, as you're seeing, has been about people who are too stubborn to find true wisdom. And it leads me to ask, what is it that we're looking for when we look for wisdom? Is it, is it just information? When, when we want wisdom, are we just wanting to know a lot? Or is there something more to it? I don't think wisdom is about being smart. Wisdom is about learning how to live rightly, like how to live the way you were made to live. Wisdom is about discovering the key to life. Around this time, this is pretty interesting, around this time, many of the Jews would have been reading a book called Sirach. Sirach. In fact, if you have a Catholic Bible at home, Sirach is included in the Apocrypha. It was a book that, that I want to say it came out about 200 years prior to Christ. And so they would have been reading, I might be wrong on the dates, so don't call me on the dates, but in any case, lots of the Jews would have been reading Sirach. And in Sirach 51, the 51st chapter, it's sort of like a wisdom book, so the the writer even tries to model the way he writes after Solomon and tries to write as though it's a, you know, in, in, in the wisdom literature tradition. So in the 51st chapter, the sage that's writing, he kind of stops. He tells the reader, acquire wisdom. Get wisdom, which would have been familiar to anybody reading the Proverbs, but listen to where he goes with this. Put yourself under wisdom's yoke and receive instruction. In other words, Learn. Come to wisdom, put yourself under wisdom's low yoke, and learn. And when you've done that, you'll say to yourself, I haven't labored all that hard, and I have found much rest. Isn't that curious? Then here's Jesus talking to a crowd that would be very familiar with this passage. And he's saying, You remember that sage who told you to go to wisdom? I'm that wisdom. He's telling you to come to me. I am it. I am the one who will show you how to live. I am the one who will give you the key to life. I am the one who will take your burdens. I am the one who is here to meet you in your desperation. I'm here to meet you in your exhaustion. I'm here to meet you in your grief. Rest is ahead for you. All you have to do is acknowledge that you're tired. So Jesus extends this invitation to people who have been carrying burdens that are overwhelmingly heavy, right? These crushing burdens. And the image here is of a yoke. So I don't want a lot of people to know what a yoke is, but for those who don't, it's, those, those, it's like a harness that you see on people's backs, this kind of harness with like the two buckets. You've probably seen this in different paintings or whatever. Someone carrying this harness, and they have oftentimes it's buckets of water or other sort of heavy objects, and they put this harness on their back, to make it possible to carry even more weight, basically. So that's kind of what a yoke was. And so the, the picture here is of people who are carrying these extremely heavy yokes, these extremely heavy yokes with heavy burdens on either side. And Jesus is saying, put those down. Aren't you tired? 
But then he says, and put mine on instead, which seems like a bait and switch to me, right? Like that just, uh, why would you, hold up, you're giving me rest, but I'm still going to be carrying a yoke? But Jesus replies that carrying his yoke is entirely different. It's a different experience than carrying any other. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But how can that be? Like, when I look at the Sermon on the Mount, when I look at these passages of discipleship, I think, how can your burden be any lighter? How can living life following you be any easier? When you yourself said that if I follow you, I'm inviting persecution, how can it be any different? What's different about this yoke? And Jesus would say, the master who put it on you. What's different is the master who put it on you. Every other master, and know that all of us are following masters, every other master is offering some key to life. And the truth is that as we follow those masters, they will eat us alive. Like, at what point do you have such a perfect body that you can finally look in the mirror and say, I'm attractive? Like, at what point along the way have you had so much fun that you can say, I've lived without regret? At what point are you available enough and and comfortable enough to say, I'm now free and rested enough to be my best self? At what point have you studied enough or thought about things enough to finally say, I'm certain now. I have enough knowledge. These are all ways that we try to validate ourselves. These are all ways that we try to prove to ourselves that we're worth something. And we work and we work and we work to try to prove that we're worth something. And yet it's never clear when we've arrived. It's because they're demanding of us everything. With no interest for us, these masters, they're eating us alive. And you can't handle the burden of finding your own worth. Now, there are other burdens. For others, it's the burden of grief. It's the burden of hopelessness. It's feeling crushed by the pain of death and striving to find some kind of meaning in all the absurdity, the absurdity of loss, the absurdity of human violence, and trying to be the one that crafts some kind of meaning out of all that darkness. And you can't handle that burden either. But these are the burdens that Jesus carried. That is the yoke that he shouldered. He carries our burdens up the hill. He carries our identity with all its sin, all its stubbornness, all its conceit, all its weakness. He shouldered your grief, your rage, your despair. He carried your yoke so that you could carry his. If you're one of those people who's working and working to find some kind of worth in Christ, that worth is given freely as a gift. His identity is given to you through the cross. You're worth something. If you're one of those people who, who's, who's struggling in the face of the ugliness of death, know that the victory over that enemy was won on the cross too. 
and he invites us to learn from him. To learn from a master who loves us, who wants us with him, who cares for us and has given himself for us so that we can walk with him with nothing to lose and everything to gain. And sometimes it's a demanding burden, but not a heavy one. Because we walk with grace. This is the invitation that Jesus extends to us. And it occurs to me, too, that it's the invitation that we extend to the world. If you're here and you need to come to Jesus, whether you know him already or not, I encourage you after the service, come to the prayer team. Receive prayer today. Come to Jesus. If you need to be refreshed by the Lord, come and receive prayer after the service. But also, if there's someone in your life who needs to come to Jesus, come forward and pray for that person. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a kind master. That you give us grace where other masters, other idols would just crush us. I pray, Lord, that we would come to you this morning and worship and that we would lay our burdens at your feet. We are not strong enough to handle them, but you already have. We love you, Lord. Amen.